and welcome to ADC Spotlight, the monthly podcast that discusses issues pertinent to child health with guests who make you think about areas not usually explored. I'm Rachel Becko, Senior Editor of Archives of Disease and Childhood, and this is ADC Spotlight. Today I'm speaking with Professor Isaac Odemy. He is Professor of Paediatrics at University of Toronto and Head of the Haematology Section at the Hospital for Sick Children or Sick Kids, Toronto, Canada. In the online first area of the Archives of Disease in Childhood, you will find the review paper Sickle Cell Disease in Children, an update of the evidence in low and middle income settings. Welcome Isaac and thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. The pleasure is mine. And maybe just to start, it, it, it might be helpful, although many people will have some familiarity with sickle cell disease, it might be helpful if, if you could highlight um, uh, the, uh, the areas where you feel that are of interest and specifically the, the burden of disease maybe for individuals, uh, but also for the healthcare system. Yeah, sickle cell disease is one of the commonest uh, monogenetic disorders that affects hemoglobin, the protein that is specialized in carrying oxygen in our bodies. But though it is a mutation that may have arisen as a result of selection pressure from malaria, because people who have one copy of the gene have a survival advantage if they live in a malaria endemic region. So for thousands of years, in malaria endemic regions in Sub-Saharan Africa, India, some parts of the Middle East and the Mediterranean, this gene has become prevalent because it protects people. It makes them survive malaria when they are young. And over years, migrations from these areas to the Americas primarily from the slave trade and to Western Europe and America and other Western countries because of modern day migrations. These diseases, uh, uh, sickle cell diseases, are becoming more and more common in Western Europe, the Americas, and really all over the world. The problem though is that although it's a disease of hemoglobin, its effect is virtually on every organ. And this is because the mutation, when it occurs in double dose, that is, if the individual inherits two genes from both parents, it causes the red cells to sickle when the hemoglobin has given off the oxygen. And when it sickles, which is where it derives its name from its donut circular shape to a circle shape, it becomes rigid it breaks very easily. And not only that, it is sticky, both to the smooth lining of the blood vessels that we call endothelium, and it becomes sticky to other cells in the blood. So over time, this causes inflammation in the blood vessels. It causes uh, distraction of the blood vessels. The blood cells break easily, which causes something we call hemolysis, the uh, uh, hemoglobin gets low and causes anemia. The blood vessels get damaged. And because virtually every organ in the body needs blood vessels for supply of blood, this disease is a multi-systemic disease 
that can cause considerable damage to the brain, the heart, the kidneys, the lungs, the bones. It can cause gallbladder disease. It damages the spleen. Virtually no organ is spared from the impact of this disease. And so even if patients are few within health systems, because of the multiple effects that it has in terms of organ damage, the systemic impact, it creates a significant burden in caring for these patients. One of the hallmarks of this disease is excruciating pain that results from blockage of blood vessels and low blood supply, starving the tissues of oxygen. And in the bones, this can cause excruciating pain, which is one of the commonest reasons patients with sickle cell disease seek care in emergency departments. Thanks, Isaac. And as I'm listening to you, I'm just thinking it's a horrible disease. It is. It is a serious disease. And unfortunately, even in Western countries with highly developed health systems, not enough healthcare professionals and healthcare workers recognize this. And as a result, needless catastrophes happen, not because resources are not available to treat, but because the providers don't have adequate knowledge of this disease. Mm. That's something that we might get to later on in our conversation because that's an absolutely important aspect. May I ask you maybe a slightly personal question? It would be about what drew you to this area, Isaac? What was calling you? I was born in Ghana, in West Africa, which has a high burden of disease. Virtually 2% of children born in Ghana will have a form of sickle cell disease. And I have nephews and nieces that live with the disease and schoolmates and friends, classmates, who have actually succumbed to the disease. So I have a personal experience and knowledge of the disease, something that I was aware of even while growing up. So when I entered medical school and decided to do pediatrics and thought of self-specialization, it wasn't surprising at all that hematology came very close to my heart and one of the reasons I went into hematology is to develop the expertise in sickle cell disease and to try to make an impact. Currently, I'm a medical director of the Global Sickle Cell Disease Network that is beginning to look at the disease globally and see ways in which clinicians and scientists in low-income countries can partner with their counterparts in high-income countries to enable us develop ways of accelerating research in this area, and not only that, empower and enable clinicians in high burden areas to develop clinical programs that will mm. save lives. So as you say, it's the, the sickle cell disease is a systemic disease. Yes. And what you're just highlighting there is that response to that disease uh, would also need to be systemic, so across borders and, and in a collaborative way to identify what it is that we know um, and what it is that we could deliver in responding to this burden. In the review, you give a, a very detailed table and overview as to sort of what interventions are available, including with level of 
uh, certainty, if there is such a thing in healthcare, uh, a level of um, impact potentially, but you can only do that if it's actually available. So could you talk a bit to the what it is that you would advise at country level the interventions uh, that would help best? The interventions that are needed for sickle cell disease are really not very highly sophisticated. And that is the tragedy of the story of sickle cell disease. Diagnosis is not technically challenging. Uh, Screening of patients for complications is not technically challenging. And some of the therapies that have made significant difference uh, to the lives of children living with this disease are simply early detection, commencement of antibiotic prophylaxis, adequate vaccination, education of parents to know what to do when the child has fever, to be able to recognize complications early, access to blood transfusion therapy, which is often needed because they have anemia and and when they have intercurrent illness, the hemoglobin will drop. Things like uh, hydroxyurea therapy uh, called hydroxycarbamide in Europe, uh, which is an oral medication, which is an effective disease-modifying therapy. And all these uh, interventions, if they are coordinated by systems that have established clinics with teams of doctors and nurses and social workers and pharmacists working together, it is possible to deliver high quality care and to prevent needless deaths. What it needs is the will to act and to address the problem head on and to make resources available. However, in low and middle income countries, particularly low income countries, mainly in sub-Saharan Africa, that bears over three quarters of the burden of the disease. Some of these resources, simple as they are, are not easily accessible and available because most patients and families live in rural settings and access to district hospitals where some of these interventions can be delivered is really limited. And so in Sub-Saharan Africa and places like India, there's a large population of patients who may not have access to these interventions that are easily deliverable if patients can access them. And so what my review was trying to highlight is that in low middle income countries, there needs to be attempts to diagnose the disease early, especially in primary care settings. But there should be linkages to sickle cell disease centers in first referral hospitals within districts, which are the most accessible to children and their families who live in rural settings. That way one can ensure that after they are detected, they can be referred to these centers where disease-modifying treatments can be given, which will save them from needless deaths. So there's interventions at several levels there, what I'm hearing, Isaac. So one is the the ability to diagnose. Yes. Close to where the children might be. Yeah. Preferably as a neonate. Yes. Then with that knowledge comes uh, the second step, 
is that there's access to interventions that would modify the disease. Exactly. And then third, there needs to be an infrastructure for that child to be able to access all that. Yep. If all those three were um, indeed available, what would you say, if you could put a numerical value to that, uh, the result of that would be? So currently, in countries that have been able to at least have newborn screening, early diagnosis, antibiotic prophylaxis, referral to centres that can treat complications. Over 95% of children affected with sickle cell disease will become adults. By contrast, if we go to low-income countries, over half of them die before the age of five. I believe, and we have evidence from pilot programs that have been done in Sub-Saharan Africa, that if you have newborn screening linked to sickle cell disease centers of reference, the same results can be achieved as has been achieved in the high-income countries, meaning that one can reduce mortality by nearly 75 to 80% by doing these interventions. So they are badly needed to save the needless deaths that are occurring. And the tragedy, Rachel, is that in many of these deaths, the families will not even know that sickle cell disease was the cause of death. And so we, we need to really have centers that can treat these patients and newborn screening or early diagnosis programs that will ensure that we detect these children before they succumb to the complications of the disease. That's extraordinary. That's, anyway, that's, a, that's a huge difference. These were pilot interventions. Is that, is that right? Correct. So what, what will be the next step? So I think there's an intervention that we take for granted in the rich parts of the world, and that is universal newborn screening. And many parents are not even aware that their children are tested for all kinds of disorders when they are born. And this is universal. So in the high-income countries, screening for sickle cell disease is part of a, a very comprehensive universal program of screening for many disorders, including metabolic and endocrine disorders that we know can be fatal or devastating for the child. However, that infrastructure doesn't exist in many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. And so the system of detection is weak. And setting up centralized system is challenging because the infrastructure is not there. Fortunately, scientific advancement has enabled the development of what we call point-of-care diagnostic tools that are rapid, and that require only a small drop of blood sample that can give results within 10 minutes and can actually be integrated into immunization programs or every time any person seeks healthcare, which will enable better detection of those who are affected. So my review also emphasizes that while countries are waiting to set up that universal infrastructure for newborn screening, 
they can begin to use this point of care tests that can be linked to immunization programs. Fortunately, even in low in- income settings, vaccination programs have been well developed and in many countries have over 90, 95% coverage. So if we can expand the use of these point of care devices and reduce their cost to less than a dollar so that they are affordable, that will enable us to detect them on a high scale. However, before we do that, we should establish sickle cell disease centers because after all, the only reason you are testing is that you have places assigned with all the tools, with all the expertise to look after them. So sickle cell centers need to be established in district hospitals and first level referral hospitals. And then there should be an expansion of diagnosis that allows prompt referrals from the primary care settings where these children are being immunized or seeking care to these sickle cell centers that can use drugs like hydroxyurea therapy and disease-modifying therapy that has proven efficacy and safety. So that's what my review is trying to emphasize, that we need to address this neglected disease, which we have known for a long time because sickle cell disease happens to be the first genetic disease in man for which the molecular basis was known. It's an understatement to say it's taken a while to get to a to a place to be able to address it, and we're not there yet. Do you have any concrete examples, Isaac, of what countries that have been able to uh, to proceed on that route? So over twenty years ago, Ghana began a pilot newborn screening program that was led by Professor Henry Frimpong, based in in Philadelphia, who designed a pilot program to screen newborns for sickle cell disease. He was able to demonstrate that if you identify them at birth or close to before they were three months of age and you enroll them in the program, you achieve the same results that you get in the United States. This has been replicated in some parts of Africa. But Rachel, I have to tell you that even after demonstrating that this system works and it saves lives, as yet, there is no country in Sub-Saharan Africa that has a universally countrywide system for early diagnosis. And as I alluded to before, it is because they have to build the infrastructure for centralized testing right from scratch which was not the case when a country like UK decided to add sickle cell disease to its newborn screening program. It was just an extra test on the menu of an already existing system. So countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, though the evidence is overwhelming, are still struggling to have the universal centralized system where the blood is collected on a filter paper, is mailed to a, a centralized laboratory, The results come weeks after, and when you receive the results, you have to now track the baby and enroll them into clinical care. What I'm proposing is that while that is aspirational, point-of-care tools are available that can be used within immunization setting or in any setting where the child or the family 
encounters the healthcare system. The resource is known instantly, and while during the encounter, one can begin to counsel and educate the families and ensure prompt referral to a sickle cell center. So I'm proposing that low and middle income countries have to use a different approach than what is used in high income countries. Well, that makes makes total sense. So I wondered with that long history of knowledge about sickle cell disease, how can the local knowledge, uh, say in the villages, be used to engage uh, folk to think about sickle cell disease um, and with this process in doing immunisation or other encounters? You've made a, a very good point that although the disease has been known for thousands of years, in most parts of Africa and India and other places, is associated with a lot of stigma and a lot of misunderstanding as to what causes the disease. So sometimes it's misattributed to witchcraft, it's misattributed to a curse on the family. So it is not always something that families will openly talk about. And that is simply because the disease is mysterious because the child is born perfectly healthy and normal and beautiful looking. Then as they are growing up, things begin to turn very badly and they become very sick and they die. They don't achieve their dreams at all and and they keep happening in families. So in parts of Africa, the cause of it is misunderstood. So there's the need to create awareness and the need to take out the stigma that is associated with it. And that is made easier if you have treatment for it. I mean, when HIV first broke and there was no treatment for it, it was associated with a lot of stigma. But now that we have treatments, effective treatments for HIV, that stigma has significantly reduced. I think it's the same with sickle cell disease. But when you come to even high-income countries, that the reason why we are having challenges is because people who live with the disease are predominantly people of African descent and other racial minorities. And the systemic racism that affects, that causes disparities and inequities in assessing specialized care also contributes to challenges and barriers for patients who are seeking comprehensive care. And I think if you look at the problem, because it's predominantly affecting minorities, people who usually are immigrant populations to these countries, there is a disparity and a gap that needs to be addressed. For example, when they go to seek care in the emergency department for excruciating pain, which by the way, is clearly more intense than labor pains, many patients have challenges getting prompt and adequate pain control. And what is worse, they are stereotyped and they are often described as seeking opioid drugs, as drug seekers, which has become a very challenging problem for many patients with sickle cell disease and many families when they are seeking simple, 
prompt analgesia for their child or for themselves because they have acute onset of pain. So there are systemic issues with racial disparities and inequities that need to be addressed even in high-income countries. Because I was wondering about the focus, I was wondering about the um, uh, the treatment um, of sickle cell disease in high-income countries as well. I mean, obviously the focus is in low- and middle-income countries because that's where the larger numbers are and there needs to be a different approach given the infrastructure in, in these countries. But I'm glad you say that we, there is no such thing as being complacent in the higher-income countries because there's work to be done as well, although of a very different nature. So could you talk to that a bit then, maybe, Isaac? Yes, um, I think for those who live in the UK, you may be aware that recently there was a, a parliamentary committee report on sickle cell disease. That really was very damning in terms of expressing the frustrations of patients and their families. What underlies that, apart from the racial inequalities, is the fact that too many doctors and nurses and health professionals are ignorant about the disease. And, and so you can imagine a patient who is in acute crisis, who goes to seek care and has to be the one trying to advocate for himself or herself or trying to educate the provider as to what is needed to control their symptoms. And if they are not believed or they are not trusted that what they are saying is factual, that even accentuates the problem. So there is clearly a need to increase awareness of the disease among health professionals, develop guidelines and easily accessible information and tools for clinicians to be able to assess so that they will have knowledge. And even if they don't have the knowledge readily, they know exactly where to get the knowledge and be able to apply it. I think patients are frustrated that often not much is known about their disease and what they say is not believed and that delays their treatment and in many cases actually needless deaths have occurred. So there is a, a need to understand that the resources to treat this disease are easily available. It's just that we've got to create a system that makes it accessible to the patients because healthcare providers and institutions that deliver care are ready for them. They have the needed protocols. They know where to get guidance as to what to do. And that is why an evidence-based guideline that is easily accessible, that is within grasp, should go a long way in bridging this disparity and equity gaps. There's, a, there's another aspect, though, there, Isaac, as well, because there is the medical interventions, which you can do, and as you can say, you can write a guideline. But the context where you apply those guidelines is also important. So if you're dealing with patients who have been many times been questioned about the veracity 
um, of their symptoms, uh, then that that patient is not necessarily, or that family is not going to necessarily be in a good position to have an open conversation. How, what would you say to that? Exactly. And pain turns out there's no magical way of measuring pain. It is not a laboratory test. It is not something that you use a tool to measure. Pain is what the person says, I feel. And so if there's distrust in believing what they say, you already have a broken relationship. And that is the combative relationship many patients have with their providers when they go to seek care. In addition, Rachel, this disease has huge psychosocial impact. Can you imagine somebody being in labor pains two times every month and needing pain relief? And now that it goes away completely, it may stay on for days and it keeps recurring. And when they go to seek care, nobody believes them. They don't get adequate pain control. Over time, you're going to despair. You're going to have depression. You're going to have anxieties about your life, about your future. It's going to affect your educational achievement. It's going to affect your ability to retain your job. It's going to affect your relationships. It's going to affect your future in terms of procreation. And so the psychosocial impact of this disease is huge. In low-income countries where the system is not supportive, most of the care and the cost of it is borne by families. And this often can lead to financial catastrophes that impoverishes families. And of course, then they blame it on the sick child or the sick children who have been born in the family and have been the cause of the family's poverty. So the psychosocial dimension of this disease is huge. And until we really find a way of supporting families to make sure that they are certain that they can access care when they need it and the care will be appropriate and that disease-modifying therapies will be effectively used to minimize the complications of the disease, I think the psychosocial impact will continue to be a high burden, which means that these patients and their families, and by the way, not only the patients, we now know that their caregivers also suffer a lot of distress. They are not able to contribute their full measure of uh, their potential skills to society because of the increasing burden of this disease. Thank you, Isaac. On that note, we see that sickle cell disease is not just a molecular diagnosis. It's got wide-ranging consequences for the individual, the family, and the wider healthcare system, as well as the capacity of a country to have a flourishing population. Thank you for your work. Thank you. And I just want to add also that it's not all that gloomy because in recent years, we have seen enormous advancements in developing new treatments and even pursuing curative therapies, which is bringing some degree of hope to families 
and to people living with sickle cell disease that good and effective disease-modifying therapy and even curative therapies will be more and more accessible in the future. So I want to end on a more hopeful note. Thank you for listening. We publish regular podcasts about some of the best content of archives of disease in childhood. The papers discussed in ADC Spotlight will be available free of charge for a month after the podcast episode releases. This paper will be free of charge indefinitely, given that it's part of our special section of global health. If you don't want to miss us, please subscribe on your preferred platform to get the podcast directly on your device each month. We'd also like to hear from you, so please leave us a review on the Archives of Disease and Childhood podcast page on iTunes. Thank you, and until next month.